Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended... For adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody, it's the return of the author, Buddy Levy. He's the author. Uh, he was pre- he was previously way back at episode one ninety seven. God, was it that long ago? Yeah, I was just weird. thinking the same thing. That was I feel a like long time ago. We were just sitting ago. here a couple minutes ago. The episode "Eating Folks in the Arctic." <laughs> that was a good title. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> what, t- tell about the books you came because you came in and we talked about Crockett. You bet. Yeah, and I uh, wrote a book called "American Legend" about the life of a, of David Crockett, and uh, then. Labyrinth of Ice was a book that I wrote about the Greeley expedition that ended up with some cannibalism involved mm-hmm. and, sure, uh, man. Yeah. you know, grim experiences. Oh, it's just like two, it's like, <laughs> I don't know how you could write this stuff. You know, it's funny. I, I got asked by one of my professors a while ago. He's like, do you ever write books in which no one dies? And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> I, I haven't yet. Oh, just everybody's <laughs> you know? like their feet falling off and they, t- they take their mittens off and their hands stuck in their mitten. It's just like, wow, <laughs> oh, man. I could believe you went and, and now you, you, your new book's out, Empire of Stone and Ice. And it's like a bunch more people freezing to death and dying and. Yeah, I like it. I like to see uh, people <laughs> at up against it, you know, when they are um, in the elements having to use their wits to survive, you know. And a lot of times, you know, the expeditions start out with lofty goals and they're, sure. they're um, you know, they're trying for new lands or to reach the North Pole or but something. I, but I always you go know? into them knowing this. Um, 
The only reason I, I'm thinking, as soon as I start the book, I'm like, the only reason someone wrote the book is I can tell this must all go to shit. It's not going to be a big book about how it went great. <laughs> well, endurance, though, I will say that people always say, like, you know, is this like endurance, you know, um, Shackleton's Antarctic expedition? I go, yeah, it's really like endurance, except in endurance, everyone lives. In my yeah. books, most people die, yeah. um, which isn't not necessarily true. Like maybe half, you know. So and there's in, a little bit of a happy ending component. Yeah. If, but if, also, you, if you're willing to get there. It's like a half glass full, half right. glass. Your crew, crew half, half, he's a crew yeah. half full or crew yeah. half empty kind well, of guy. Also, I'm always like, I don't want to give spoilers, you know, even though um, when you look at the cover, the spoiler, you're like, what's the, that's what's not going to go what's well. What's the subtitle? <laughs> yeah. A disastrous and heroic voyage of oh, the garlic. See, right. yeah, both. yeah, glass half yeah. full, glass yeah. half empty. Yeah. The disastrous. <laughs> It's an image of a ship that doesn't look like it's going anywhere yeah, anytime soon. The disastrous <laughs> and heroic. Right. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's um I really do like stories that have um you know, protagonists and antagonists and also where once things have gone really poorly, then there has to be some kind of industriousness and people who figure out whether it's navigation or whether it's like, you know, woods craft and how to, how to MacGyver their way out of these really dire situations. I, I just love, um, oh, and also I guess I've, I'm sort of drawn to the cold, you mm-hmm. know, this is a second book I've written about the Arctic and I have a third one under contract that's about the, uh, the going to the North Pole in dirigibles. <laughs> we'll get to that later. In a what? Mm. In, in, well, it's right. It's semi-rigid dirigibles, oh. a.k.a. blimp. Yep. But, um, oh, I got you. Yeah, so they tried someone to- someone tried that. Yeah, in 1905, they tried to fly blimps to the North Pole. Um, Did they all eat each other? <laughs> it didn't end well. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, crashing a blimp a couple hundred miles from the North Pole is uh, not, you know, it's not on the usually on the flight plan. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just there's something about um, you know the far north for one thing. Uh-huh. Um, I grew up with a dad who was a Nordic skier and ski racer, and he used to take us out in Southern Idaho and, you know, I would go duck hunting on Silver Creek and and it would be like 20, 30 below sometimes when I was a little kid, you know? And so, um, and I guess just being in cold places has always kind of, um, intrigued me the idea of like, especially historical, um, stories where, you know, they did not necessarily have the kind of gear that we have now. Sure, yeah, yeah. In some cases, though, the the Inuit Arctic clothing is probably better than right. what we have. Um, but yeah, I, I just am really drawn to um, expeditions gone awry, and then how are they going to get out of this? Yeah, one of the things that uh, I want to get into with you when we get going on it is um, I've always been a big fan of Stephenson. Okay. And I always knew that he had uh, like a little bit of a fall from grace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't fully understand the fall from grace. And I don't know, like you paint him out to be a real, um, he's the villain of the book. But it doesn't, like what he does, it's villainous, doesn't undo why, I, why I'm interested in him. Really? So I'm interested because like his, his observations and the things that he recorded about the Eskimo hunters that he spent time with. I mean, he had observations and, 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 um, things about life ways and cultural mm-hmm. practices 
that I, I haven't encountered anywhere else. I mean, he might have yeah. been a total like, what's in it for me? I'm out of here. Uh, yeah. And I'll let you guys kind of die. Um, <laughs> he might be that kind of guy, but it doesn't undo some of the insane stuff he did. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because um, Willemer Stephenson, it's just funny, his, his, he was born William and then he changed his name back to the Icelandic sounding spelling. Oh, I didn't spelling. know that. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, another, that's another score against the guy. Yeah. Um, and, by I the was way, Bill Jalmer. So how, how, how would he have said it? Uh, Willemer. Wilhelmer. He was born or, William? He was born William, oh, nicknamed Willie. That would annoy the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, that it's like today. he didn't want to sound American. He wanted to sound more authentic. To well, his, right, to yeah. his chosen yeah. region for being yeah. an you know an explorer or a would be uh, you know Arctic legend having a, a name like Amundsen or Nansen or Fritjof, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is oh. uh, but yeah, he it was funny because he was born William. He changed his name back to the uh, the Icelandic spelling, um, and, and, uh, and but his he was his people called him Staff. You know, it was easier than pronouncing Willemer. You know. Well, so, I didn't know that either. But the guy. I used to hang out with the guy. Matt, I used to peel logs for log homes. And another log peeler, he's like, he would always tell everybody his name's Bear Paw. And I'm like, I don't think that it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the guy is what he's really complex. Um, and, you know, because the this book, Empire of Ice and Stone, can, deals mostly with the period that just has to do with the Canadian Arctic expedition. Yep. Um, you know, his actions in and around this particular expedition are the ones that I primarily deal with sure. and treat. But you are oh, absolutely- it's strange behavior, man. Yeah. I mean, he you were absolutely right that if you take in, in totality the bulk of this guy's work, you know, um, he is, was very influential in, in understanding how one- uh, how it was possible in really small teams to live in the Inuit or Inupiat way. Um, the problem I think he ends up having is that he's trying to do an expedition that is of a much bigger scale yeah. uh, involving, you know, multiple ships, 15 scientists. And so it sort of went against the, his core principle, which is like, if you, if you were in a small team, on skis or snowshoes, uh, you know, with sledges, self-contained, you're going eating just what you encounter and living essentially off the land. You're going to be able to do better than if you're trying to take, uh, you know, whole bunches of people who may or may not have a lot of experience uh, in ships, uh, you know, in very uncertain waters. And then that's when things go wrong. You know, um, and so, yeah, I, I think um, he, he's a really complicated figure. And I struggled a lot with, you know, how much to villainize him, mm -hmm. I, I have to say. Um, so in the in the scope of just what happens in this book, you know, some of his actions, I think, were, um, you know, you can't really square it with like. The, what he should have done. Sure. It was yeah. self-seeking. No, we'll cover it. Yeah. yeah. I got a quiz question for you, though. Okay. Oh. What was Stephenson's favorite wild game meat? Um, I'm going to go with Ugruk, or bearded seal. Wolf. Wolf. Really? Mm -hmm. Like the more than anything else. Wolf. 
One of my favorite, one of my favorite Stephenson meals. He talks about it in my life with the Eskimo is they find a whale, be a beached whale, and its tongue is dried out, but it still looks good. <laughs> Pretty they good cut, shape. They cut its tongue out. He talks about how they had to boil it and change the water multiple times to get all the salt out of it. And they later learned from the Eskimo that um, that whale's been laying there five years. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fermented and tempered. Oh, man. We should get, uh, we got to cover a couple things real yeah. quick, but we should get our terminology right. Let yeah. me tell you a story. I was on Nunavak Island, okay, with the Chupik Eskimo. And I said to a Chupik Eskimo, I said, hey, uh, I noticed you guys say Chupik Eskimo. Uh, what like what do you like a white guy like me to call you? And he goes, "Well, if I'm if I'm not an Eskimo, what am I?" I'm like, I just I said I'm just checking, man, because there's a lot of confusion about the whole Inuit Eskimo thing. And he's like, "I've never heard anybody call me a Chupik Inuit." He hadn't. <laughs> no. Like, well, what did he call himself? Chupik Eskimo. Chupik Eskimo. So so there's yeah. a, there's this kind of thing. I think that like there's a lot of confusion around the terms, and now it's the, anytime. It's just one of those situations where um, it, maybe I'm like, okay, maybe he can, he'll can he say it, but he, it's not cool for me to say it. But he's like, if you're not going to call me that, I don't know what you're going to call me. It's like that we had the, the Native American guest and we asked him, is Indian cool? And he's like, yeah, but for some, it's not. Yep. You know? So, so maybe it's like yeah. that. So, so what, what are we gonna, I noticed that in, you, in, the, in, in the beginning of your book, you're like, I'm using Eskimo because all the journals... That was like, that was at the time, like when people are talking and, and that's what that, so that's the term I'm going to stick with in my book, though, right? Know, these are like people of different tribes and, and many of them now go by Inuit, right? Yeah. That's a really good point. And, you know, so I, I actually have that disclaimer in the, in the, on one of the first pages of the book sure, and yeah. because, um, but so the, um, the, you know, the term uh, for most of the people that were on this expedition would be um, Inuit or, you know, Inupiat. And yeah. so it depends a bit on where they're from, you know. Yep, and yep. and so I think it's important to distinguish, but it got a little bit clunky um, to that's why I wanted to just say, use the word Eskimo because they were using yeah, the word yeah, Eskimo. All your sources were using it. Yeah. Though, you know, it's, it is important to be sensitive to what people actually like to be called. No, that, well, that's why I'm outlining yeah. for you that I just asked a person right. rather than guess. Right, right. And it was, right. It, was, it, was, it was an unexpected reply on his part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, and so, you know, for the most part, the, the people that, we're dealing with that went on the expedition who came with the family who came with Stephenson and he picked up near Barrow. They were in Nubiet. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, they, and there were, there were four mainly. And then this other or five who originally went on the expedition. Right. Yeah. What, and, uh, they, there's a point we got to, Okay, this is the last thing we're going to do, okay? And then we're going to start from the beginning. Okay. This is the last thing we're going to do, though. Uh, Once you cross the Bering Strait, okay, so in places, it's what, 57 miles, and all of a sudden you're in Siberia. Um, Was that a completely different sort of like tribal 
Like, like it, once you cross the strait, would you would you find more people who were Inupiat, or is it a different, whole, totally different tribal history and different groups of? Humans? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and a good one. So, yeah, you know, if you're going up there, looking at the map to the left, you know, Russian Siberia, um, like Chuchki people and oh, Chuchki. Chuchki, and then you know, to the right, Alaska and in um, Canada, you you know, um, Inuit. Inupiat. Um, and so like, and that was, it's really interesting because there were some of the, the, um, native members of the expedition were like freaking out when they realized they were going to be landing on the Siberian shores. Sure. They're like, you know, my people have told me you land there, like you don't come back. They will kill us. And, you know, they just had, some of it was just lore that yep. they had heard. Um, but in the, and they end up being treated very well um, by the indigenous people of of the Siberian side, yep. um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting question, you know. Like, in uh, in Barry Lopez's Arctic Dreams, he's out hunting. He, he's out hunting with Eskimo hunters, and they're off Alaska, and they're hunting walrus. And he says, for a while, he goes, we're, we're, they were technically in Russia, right? You know? Because so, yeah, yeah and where so there's like a, a little bit of fluidity about you know. To, the, to them, I doubt they were talking about that being one continent and this being another continent. Right. I mean, you can be on a, a floating berg and all of a sudden, which, which the people in this book end up on, you know, and uh, like a mile square chunk of ice floating. And, you know, at, at some point you like are crossing into other territory, you know, yeah, exactly. above Russia now. And yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh, these people are different. Wow. wow we're yeah. on a new continent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trying to not die. Uh, all right, so let me back up one sec because I got I got to talk about a funny story. Um, the guy wrote in as they do. So this this guy writes in this letter. Um, says nothing to do with Arctic exploration. He's got a brother named Murray. It's a good name for a story. It's a, it's a w- good way to start a story. Yeah. His brother Murray. <laughs> you just like yeah, I don't know, man. Starts Sets to paint it up a picture. Nice, yeah. His brother Murray is driving through the night on an archery deer hunt when his truck ran out of gas. His truck and his gas can were old. Okay. The truck's fill spout had the flap on it, and his gas can spout was made for regular gas, so the spout diameter prevented him from filling the tank directly from the can. You can picture this, right? I keep, I'm going to point out to listeners, in my truck I keep a little funnel that's well adapted to my, a little male, yeah, like a little funnel well adapted to my truck's intake he took an arrow out of his quiver to prop open the flap and was going to spill gas from the can into the opening totally makes sense Mm -hmm. with the arrow holding the flap open he reached for the can from the bed of his truck and promptly pushed the arrow's knock into his eye he pulled the arrow out filled the tank (laughs) felt okay proceeded on his trip the next morning, his eye was swollen shut, so he headed for the hospital. He was examined by the doctor who took x-rays and determined that no permanent damage was done. Over the next year, Murray had recurring sinus infections, which he never had before. He'd take the prescribed antibiotics, get better, only to have the infections return. Now, here's what the story takes. You can probably see where this is going. But I, need to, I almost want to call uh, our resident doctor, Adam Allen. Yeah, we haven't talked to him. We haven't had reason to talk to him. Like, okay. One day I'll... Okay, go on with Murray here. One day while at work, Murray had something caught in his throat. Began to cough. 
He coughed up a pocket of mucus that had something hard encased. When he wiped the object clean, he found the knock of the arrow, which had come loose, got into his eye socket, worked its way through his sinus cavity, and then out the back of his throat in a year's time. I got a lot of questions. The X plastic Unreal. didn't plastic didn't show up on the X-ray. Like I I wear contacts, so I just don't know how. But you hear about those dudes that get shot by nail guns and don't know it. Sure, yeah. It, it's and that doctor that broke that file off up in my mouth. My my other question is, how did he not notice the knock was missing from the arrow? I could totally see how you wouldn't notice just that. Toss it in the bed of the truck, and or you'd think that it like you'd think that it whatever. In all the fuss. Yeah. I don't know. wonder if he kept it for a You ought to write a book about that. <laughs> it's a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a good book for you, man. But uh, yeah, no plastic showed up on the x-ray. I don't know, man. I'd give it a 50-50. Phil's not buying I'm it. I'm not buying it. You're not buying it, Phil? <laughs> we got to talk Phil's to calling this guy. about it. Phil's saying this guy's a bald-faced liar. <laughs> I think this guy might come down and beat Phil's ass. <laughs> He's risking that for sure. We got to talk to Alan. You call me yeah. a liar, Phil? Phil's going to know when he hears that from across the parking lot. Oh, I know. Lot. When he hears that from across the parking lot, he's going to know that his theater days are through. Yeah, that's yep. right. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's a better outcome than if... Uh, the other end went in with the broad hand. Yeah. You know that. <laughs> you can cough that up. Here's, here's a correction that came in. This guy has no... Listen. I'm going to read the correction. During episode 398 with Cole Wetzel, Steve makes an error when discussing the capitalization of wildlife species' common names. I'm quoting here. Steve is correct when he states that black bear would not be capitalized when using a sentence. Okay. And also that proper nouns such as English would be capitalized when used like an English sparrow. I was talking about how I need to do a seminar for my colleagues because I will oftentimes have to go through something and correct where someone capitalizes black bear. Okay. However, he is incorrect that sparrow would not be capitalized when, usal- when utilizing a species official name such as English sparrow. Still quoting. The American Ornithological Society states on their website, English names of birds are capitalized in keeping with standard ornithological practice. As such, unquote, as such, the official common names of all bird species, such as whooping crane or red cocketed woodpecker, would be capitalized when written. If using more generic descriptors such as woodpeckers or eagles when describing groups of birds, the lowercase version should be employed. He goes on to say, I know Steve prides himself on being correct as evidenced by every time he argues about a missed trivia question, so I just wanted to provide a helping hand. I have one word for this person. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. First off, the American (laughs) Ornithological... My retort is, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. Yeah. First off, uh, (laughs) the American Ornithological Society doesn't get to decide what's proper English, right? I know. He could have, like, listen... It, it makes no sense to me that he he agrees with you that black bear would not be capitalized either word, but English sparrow both would be capitalized. Uh, or red cockaded woodpecker would be capitalized, which is, is just like black bear. Yeah. He's, how about black <laughs> like, 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 don't get your <laughs> don't get your grammar from wherever you got it. Also, there's a phenomenon, and, and I love this guy. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks. Listen, I'm not hacking on him. I love. It's great that he wrote in. Not hacking on him. I'd rather he wrote in than didn't. But you're just wrong, buddy. The other thing I'll point out is, um, some I, I know some people that when they're telling me stuff, I'm always like, how could they have gotten that information? And I think that some people precede all their internet searches with the truth about. Exactly. We've known a couple <laughs> people like that. <laughs> like, like if you were to search. Like the picture that you're like, oh, I'm gonna do a little research on Hillary Clinton, okay? Yeah. And you type in Hillary Clinton, okay, and you could read that stuff, or you type in the truth about Hillary Clinton and oh read boy. that stuff. Yeah. It's like because you sort of like there's there's two you know versions out there. So I think maybe he wrote in the truth about capitalizing burden. <laughs> <laughs> um. Here's another half correction. Then we're, then we're back with you, buddy, so hang tight there. No worries. But you, you, as a writer, you're probably interested in that. Very much so. Yeah. You got anything you, to add? Kind of fluid. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think language changes over time, and you you know, it, the rules um, are not static. But, you know, there are certain things where you would want to use a Latin word for something, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, you can get in the weeds on this stuff. Oh yeah, you ever read Lewis and Clark journals? How they oh, just yeah. randomly capitalize, like oh, for whatever reason, all over they'll spell something different, like in the same paragraph, it'll be spelled two different. Yeah, just ways. like decide to capitalize yeah. beyond all of a sudden in the middle of the sentence. Okay, here's a guy. This is this is one. Heffelfinger's not here, but this is one for Heffelfinger. Here's a wrinkle that crossed my mind in the ongoing. I added the word ongoing. I misquoted him. He's saying, here's a wrinkle that crossed my mind in the whitetail, whitetail deer debate. I'm adding that's an ongoing debate with our buddy Heffelfinger. He asks, has anyone brought up how big horn sheep, big horn sheep, is the accepted name? It looks to me like it's grammatically the same as whitetail deer. But no one insists that you call them either big horned sheep or just big horns. Wonder what half a finger thinks about that. Big horns is pretty common, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. But I get what he's saying about the comparison to white tailed and big horned. I bet if you went back in time. Mm-hmm. You would find that they probably once upon a time, Heffelfinger will have some smart ass know it all thing to say about this. But I bet if you went back in time, it was like big. You'd see an example of big hyphen horned. Well, it was before it was officially named, they would just describe these animals as that deer is white tailed, that sheep is big horned. Mm -hmm. But now, and then it just becomes like Buddy was saying, becomes something entirely on its own after a while. So you'd have to look at what, um, yeah. It'd take about three seconds to go look at like what is its official name. I think mm-hmm. its official name is Bighorn Sheep. Yep. But this guy's not wrong like the last guy. No, that guy was wrong. <laughs> remember, do you ever, when you were a kid, did you watch Happy Days? Oh yeah. Reruns. You yep. remember when Fonzie had to apologize, but he uh Yeah, he couldn't do he it. Couldn't he couldn't pronounce the word. He'd be like, I was <laughs> 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 All right, buddy, how do we begin? Um let me set the scene. One of the things I like most about this book is that you're going to take off after this is that um, when, when I give a, at times I'll give a list of like 10, 10, my 10 favorite books, 10 greatest books for outdoor enthusiasts. My life with the Eskimo is always on there. Okay. It's amazing. Yeah. Let me get uh, like Arctic dream. It's like coming into the country by John McPhee, 
like greatest greatest book for outdoorsmen. Okay, be like coming into the country for John McPhee, My Life with the Eskimo by Stephenson, Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez, um, Journals of Lewis and Clark. No, never put no? that on there. Okay. No, no, too many capitals. Well, <laughs> I can explain why. Okay, just yeah, I don't want to get into it. Um, but it's always on there. I, I love it that this book begins and Stephenson is like literally finishing his manuscript of my life with the Eskimo. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. So cool. Because, uh, and by the way, I think that contributes to some of the problems that end up occurring. Yeah. Um, but we can get into that. Yeah. So give us the year and, and yeah. why, like where it's going on in America. And... Right. So, you know, it, it, it's night. This story, Empire of Ice and Stone, begins around 1913 is the expedition, 1913 to 1918, ultimately. But Stephenson has just come back uh, from being in the Arctic for like four years, right? Um, and he had been on, uh, in 1905, he did an expedition in in Iceland, and then he was on the north coast of Alaska in the Mackenzie River area. And he was really interested in the ethnology and studying um, the native peoples there. And also, you know, My Life with the Eskimo pretty much suggests that um, his theory was that a small group of people, um, of, of white people, uh, with, you know, native assistance and adopting native life ways could survive for an indefinite amount of time in the Arctic North and even on the ice, right? And, and, uh, moving between land masses and, and out on the, uh, polar sea. Yeah, just then, hunting. Yeah, hunting and eating seals primarily and walrus and, you know, back on land, caribou and Arctic fox and stuff. And he wasn't like, what's cool about him too is he wasn't sort of chasing the North Pole. He was just no. trying to find uncontacted peoples and hang out with them. Right. He he was a different, uh, you know, a different kind of explorer, more of a, a you know, a, a scientist explorer rather than trying to be the first at something. Though, um, we can get into this a little bit later. Um you know, he he was eyeballing the idea that this place, Crockerland, that Perry had said, Robert Perry had said he'd seen from the east coast or the, uh, the west coast of, of Greenland, that there was a landmass above Alaska that was undiscovered. So okay. that was kind of in the back pocket, right? Was, was this happening at kind of the tail end of Arctic exploration that like started in, say, the mid 1800s with search for the northwest? West Passage. Right. And so, but also at the at very tail end of, I mean, Peary in 1909 had claimed, uh, Cook in 08 and Peary in 1909 had, had claimed the North Pole. So that was sort of other, even though it was contested, that was sort of off the, you know, off the bucket list for people. They're like that one, the North Pole's, you know, been bagged. Now that ultimately becomes contested it's pretty like the, seriously. The North Pole's played out. Yeah, the North Pole, <laughs> we don't need to go there. Um, but there, you know, so Wilhelmer, Wilhelmer Stephenson was a very serious um, scientist, right? And so he was wanted to um, prove in a way that you could live that that small groups of people um, could live off the ice and land um, for an indefinite period of time. Now, like make all your clothes, yeah, hunt everything you need to yeah, eat, and and you know, if you're smart, bring along, uh, Inuit people, a seamstress and hunters, um, because their skills in these things was unparalleled. Right. Um, so, you know, in 1907, Sevenson had been, he'd just come back from like four years in the Arctic and 
he he kind of he did something really interesting. So there was this notion, and he perpetuated it, that of the blonde Eskimo. So mm-hmm. he came back in 1912 and claims that he's contacted while he was out there for four years that he's contacted these. Uh, descendants of Leif Erikson, who are blonde-haired, blue-eyed Eskimos or uh, Inuit peoples. And, you know... Because there was a mystery of what happened to the, to Leif Erikson, like, up in Greenland, right? Right. And so the, the, the idea was that, like, descendants of Leif Erikson had um, made their way to the West and over to the islands north of Alaska and the Yukon. Like Coronation Gulf and Victoria Island. And that they were living, that these were descendants of Leif Erikson. Now, this made headlines, right? New York Times, National News. And Stephenson um, kind of went with it. Like, he just rolled with it. He didn't, he said he'd encountered these people and that he wanted to go back and study them more. And so part of this, but but is that not true? Well, it's, it's not true. He was trying to milk the idea that they were descendants of Leif Erikson. What, what is more probable and Amundsen talks about this later is that, you know, that more, much more recent European um, explorers intermingled with, the native people there. But Stephenson was kind of rolling with this myth that these were descendants of Leif Erikson and they were called blonde Eskimos. Like they hadn't died out. They had just integrated into into Inuit culture. And and so he used that as a marketing tool, right? So he gets back after four years in the Arctic and he put this trip together, the Canadian Arctic Expedition, which is my book is about. He he whips this thing together in a matter of months, you know, sometimes expeditions of this magnitude with multiple ships and 25 scientists, you know, they take years to put together, right? So Stephenson rolls up to Seattle in 1912, perpetuating this blonde Eskimo story. The the headlines eat it up. He flies over or or sails over uh, to Europe and goes to like an international polar conference and starts talking up like this new expedition. He's going to go try to find these blonde Eskimos and um, write about them. And also that there's there was a theory that there that Peary had seen this place called Crocker Land, which was a landmass above. Alaska, and it was undiscovered, right? So those two things were kind of the impetus for um, getting this expedition put together. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless. With Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So Stephenson goes over to Europe, makes a couple of presentations. All the while, he's talking to the Canadian government. He's trying to get financing from the American Museum of Natural History, the Canadian government. And within like three or four months, he cobbles together this um, expedition that's going to have the most scientists. uh, I mean, this is arguable. Some will argue it. But the most scientists that have ever been on a polar, single polar voyage, um, three ships, um, one of the greatest ice navigators in history, this guy, Robert Bartlett from Newfoundland. Who's a badass. Total badass. And then, you know, he's cobbling this thing together. The the thing that I found really amusing is that while, so they they take, he gets all these scientists together, he gets the money together from um, the Canadian government. Uh, He agrees to become... uh, you know, he he was an uh, he was an Icelandic American because he was he was born in Manitoba. And then they moved to North Dakota when he was like three. After a couple of his family members died in a flood, and then the family moved to Nodak. And then, so 
the Canadian government's like, well, we'll pay if you become a Canadian citizen. So he was just totally <laughs> flexible. He's like, well, I'll do whatever you want, man. Sign the papers. He becomes a Canadian. No patriotism. So he's an Icelandic American Canadian, you know? And uh, so he, he cobbles this thing together. They take the Carluck, the ship that's like unsuited really for the task at hand. Like a whaling, a whaling vessel. Yeah. I mean, it was a, you know, an, it was a, Carluck is the Aleutian word for fish. And they, it was used in Seattle in the, in the salmon industry. And it was a whaling vessel. It was like How long was that boat? The boat's about 129 feet. Okay. And, uh. So ship, I guess ship, yeah. yeah. But I mean, what what what's so bizarre about this is, and I love it in a way about Stephenson. He's so badass. He's like, you Bartlett. He ends up enlisting this guy Bob Bartlett, who's who had been. Uh, the backstory on Bartlett is that he had been on two attempts to the North Pole with Peary as the captain of the SS Roosevelt, like Peary's ironclad, super badass ice breaking expedition vessel, right? And so. Bartlett had gone almost to the North Pole. He got sent back because uh, Perry took uh, Matthew Henson instead for the final 150 miles. But he was uh, already a known um, explorer and had won like the Hubbard Medal. He was a big deal. But Stephenson ends up like, okay, I'm going to use this guy um, and I'll meet you in the Carlick um, up in, in Nome. So, but Stephenson takes like a cruise pleasure ship, the SS Victoria, and he's on the ship heading toward where they're all going to meet in Nome. Uh, and he's, he's like writing the manuscript. He's got uh, a secretary with him. He's finishing the book, like my life with the Eskimo thinking about how I'm going to turn this into a bestseller while this new expedition, uh, is supposed to be taking off in like a month. So he arrives on a, you know, on a separate ship, um, and then rolls up to Nome and is like, okay, well, let's go now. Submits his manuscript. So, and, and then they take the manuscript yep. and like he's- me and Brody. Like, <laughs> it's how you yep. write up to deadline. <laughs> was, he a, was he a popular writer well, at the yeah, time? Yeah, like, I mean, he was becoming um, like a, an Arctic expert, right? Yeah. But so this thing, he had spent four years, um, he was just dropping this manuscript that was going to be like, my life with the Eskimo, how, you know, here's how it's done. And then, but that was going to be published like probably when he came back or handled by other people so that he would come back to, uh, you know, a bestseller. And, have uh, the, yeah. and he's got the follow-up ready right, to go. Right. He's got the sequel. Um, that's what I've been doing. Labyrinth of Ice, <laughs> Empire of Ice, and then Realm of Ice and, and uh, oh, there Sky. You go. Yeah. Um, but what I found so interesting about him is that like, so he was, he was multi-dimensional, you know. He already had lived um, in small, you know, with small groups um, in like the Mackenzie River Delta for y years, and living pretty much off the ice and and land and and sea ice. And so he had um, he was very good at that. I think what he was less skillful at is organizing an expedition of the magnitude of the Canadian Arctic expedition. Yeah, these guys, you know, it goes to shit. So unbelievably fast. It's amazing. It's like, I mean, literally. Like they, they leave <laughs> and, then and then, it, then it went to shit. They leave <laughs> and, they, and they get all their, you know, like they leave um, Esquimalt. They end up going to Nome and then Bartlett, the captain of who's from uh, Newfoundland. He's like, this ship 
you know, it's not really suited. This guy has been the former captain of the Roosevelt, like super badass vessel, right? And he's in this this uh, small ship with, I think the, um, he called the engine, he said it has the power of a coffee pot. <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> Just not built for breaking not through ice. For, I mean, and by the way, these were not, um, they weren't technically icebreakers anyway, but they had to be nimble and they had to be sheathed in hardwood so that you're going to encounter ice, right? The problem is that when they took off, when they, Bartlett finally stops and says, okay, we need to do some work. We got what, to retrofit this what ship. What time of year did they... Well, so they're taking off in July and, you know, in that, in that region, the window is pretty short anyway for navigable waters. Um, and they're, they were trying to make it from, uh, Nome after they got through the Bering Strait and everything, they're trying to make it from Nome over to, uh, Herschel Island, which is above, um, the Canadian Yukon, um, to the to east. So, to, you know, some, a few hundred miles, 400 miles or something, and the goal was to get there and then they were going to unload all the ships and like retrofit everything and then get, get it together from there. And there's a sort of ongoing joke among the members of the ship. They're like, because what happens is they leave so fast um, because the weather window is closing that they don't have all, they got three ships, the Carluck, which is the flagship of the expedition, the Alaska and the Mary Sachs. And they're all going to be used in different ways. But they have all the wrong equipment on the wrong and the wrong members on the wrong ships. So Stephenson's like, we'll sort that out at Herschel Island. And they end up like it becomes a joke among the men. Bartlett says it a few times. They're like, we can't find the, you know, we can't find certain um, scientific tools in there. Like you got a, ge a geologist on the Carlock and he needs other equipment that's on the Mary Sachs, which by the way, w after they all leave, they're separated within a day. The Armada is completely separated and they never see the uh, Alaska or the Mary Sachs again. The people of the call the Carlick don't, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's I, like, like I want, I want to make sure people understand this. Be like, let's say you have a big group of friends. You're all going to go on some kind of monster hunting trip, road trip, hunting trip. And you're all planning on being in different areas, hunting different shit, but you're in such a, eagerness to get out of there and get some miles behind you that you just load everything randomly into trucks yes. and in, in other people's And you're not trucks. even in the truck you're supposed to be in for where you're ultimately going. And then you pull out of the parking lot and never see each other again. How <laughs> was the hunt? Well, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really funny. You point out like how quickly this thing becomes a debacle, right? So there, Stephenson's on the Carlick and Captain Bartlett are, is on the Carlick. And a number of the scientists, right? But then some of them are on the Alaska and the Mary Sachs, and they get separated like the day out, right? So then the ship, the Carlick, gets in. It was a really, really heavy um, winter ice and snow much earlier. So in by August, early August, they're experiencing snow squalls, really zero degree temperatures, and you know they're they're starting to encounter big ice pack. Already, and they're they're just like five, ten miles off the coast of Alaska at this point. Uh, and you know, the guy, the, like, so there's a bunch of the wrong equipment and a bunch of the wrong people are on the ships. And then within days, um, they get encased in. Well, so Bartlett makes what's a kind of a controversial decision, right? So you could either, in those days, there were different theories. You could either hug the shoreline, 
stay close to shore in case things got iced up and then you can make it to land. Like like you ditch mm-hmm. the boat and make it to land. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Or maybe the boat, you find a, a enclosed protected bay and then you winter there until got the it, next season. It. But the other approach was to go out farther offshore where often there were bigger open leads and uh, open leads of water. And, and so Bartlett, after consulting with Stephenson, and this becomes kind of controversial because they don't really agree on who said what, Bartlett decides to take the bolder choice, which is to go offshore and then head east through, you know, weaving through open leads between the ice and make it to Herald Island. Yeah, uh, I just want to clarify a thing here, and you can chime in on this. The way you can imagine the polar ice is um, it's fracturing all the time and coming back together again, and windstorms will blow big chunks away. So you, you can pick your way through it, and then it'll get calm, and everything will weld together. Right. And then it might break apart in a different fashion. So they're literally like getting stuck in the ice. Then they drift for a day. Then all of a sudden it opens up and they can make some more headway. Yeah. And then they dodge a chunk of ice and they get frozen into some more ice. And then they realize they're still moving because the ice, then they're stuck in ice that's moving. Right. At it, it's high it's speed. Kind of like going through, you know, uh, an, an ice jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. whose pieces are being moved around by wind and current. Right. And so there's kind of a, there's a way to weave your way through the labyrinth. um, And, you know, you have to make headway when these things open and part and there's like a few miles of open water, but the stuff is all happening earlier than usual. And so um, they never, the irony of this is that like the first thing they're trying to do, we're going to take these three ships, leave, go over Point Barrow and then head east to this place called Herschel Island and meet there. They never even do that. So like, cause the car, now what ends up happening is that the, the two other ships, the Alaska and the Mary Sachs, they make it through. But the story that I follow concerns itself more with what happens to the members of the Carluck, which is the flagship and Stephenson and the captain Bartlett are both on it. So and a bunch of scientists and then an Inuit family and um, a couple hunters. So, Bartlett try, makes the bold move. He's going to go offshore and try to make his way north and then up and around and meet it at um, Herschel Island. Within days, they are what's called beset or encased in like a mile square of ice, right? So it it sort of knits all around them and they're they're like in a floating iceberg, Though it's not like Heiberg, it's a, it's like a flat flow, yeah. right? And it's hauling ass. And it's well then, <laughs> so and and then things really go whack. So they 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 hang out on the ship like waiting around for a while to figure out like what's going to happen. And two really important things happen early on. Um, one is that while they're still within striking distance of the northern Alaskan coastline, Stephenson at, at, in in second week of September decides. Hey, I'm going to go caribou hunting. He basically tells the captain Bartlett, I'm going to go caribou hunting. I'll be gone for about 10 days to two weeks should no disaster occur. And, and Bartlett's like, what, what? You're going caribou hunting? And No, he peaced out. I, I, he, so there's a, whole, there's a whole thing that's going on here, which is that, um, and, you know, I told you I'm not really, I, I hate spoilers, but it's like, you know. My, oh, my, you just got to lay it out. You got to lay it out. You got to trust people are going to yeah, read the book. Yeah. And so- they're they're frozen in. They've been floating 
in kind of a circuitous weaving way. They're not going any one direction for very long for a couple, for like a month. Stephenson's all antsy because he's like, okay, my expedition, the two other ships are somewhere. I got to get out of here. You know, like I should probably go to land. Um, and so he says, I'm going caribou hunting because under the pretense that they need fresh meat, because if they are going to be stuck for a really long time on the ship, they're going to, they're going to, they've got like a couple yeah, years worth then of food. How much is he yeah, really going really to haul back anyway? No, That's got, what like, I was going to ask. Were yeah. they set up for like kind of a normal oh, yeah. Arctic expedition where they were prepared to be there for they, years? They were prepared that, to be there for maybe two years and- they, they have, have the years where the pemmican yeah. because, yeah. because they have like <laughs> two, former, brand, they had two brands of pemmican. They Underwood. have like yeah. presumably former information to base stuff off of, like the terror in the Erebus, like oh yeah, disappearing and like you they, would think they would they kind had, of be like, man, shit could go bad out right. Here. So usually you would bring more food than you you know you for a year and then you got to figure like if things go really poorly we got to have even more but so stephenson says i'm going caribou hunting i'm taking these two inuit hunters named jimmy and jerry <laughs> uh, and also the a couple of the scientists who were supposed to be on the other ships they're supposed to be doing like ethnological study over in above northern canada and so he's like, I need to take those two guys so that they can go where they're supposed to go. And then he brings this photographer along, um, this guy named Wilkins, which is kind of cool because then you've got this photographic image of Stephenson leaving the car look. Like he can't, you know, he's got the dog sled team and he's like charging off and the he's ship's like, frozen, <laughs> bailing on his expedition. And there's like photographic evidence of him doing it, you know. But he says, I'm going hunting and I'll be back. And it, you should probably light big f coal fires around the ship in case, uh, so I can see it. So immediately, like, it's just a bad timing, right? Immediately, the freaking whopper of a storm comes in. Stephenson gets about like six to eight miles and he gets to this little island um, right above, uh, it's called, I think, uh, I'll find it later. But, but he um, was walking across the pack ice. So he's ice. walking across the pack ice with dog sled team. He took the best dogs too. Took um, the best hunters and the yeah, best, best dogs. Best hunters, best dogs. And so he's like, gets to this island, and as they're camped there, a massive storm comes in. And by the time the, the like sky's clear, he looks out and the Carlick is freaking gone. And now it's beelining like 25 to 30 miles a day on the Arctic drift. Just blowing in the wind. Blowing in the wind toward Siberia, right? <laughs> and so he's like, uh, where's your ship? Um, so at that point, you know, Stephenson makes, he has to wait on this island for like a week for the, for the, because now the storm also breaks up the ice all around the little island he's on. So then he, there's, he's like, there's water, uh, water he can't get across. Um, so he waits it out. And it's kind of cool. They build like this 15 foot driftwood observation tower where he's up there, like looking, dude, where's my ship kind of situation. <laughs> you know? And then he just goes to land with these, um, two Inuit hunters and the photographer and, uh, another scientist. It seems just kind of write the whole thing off. And bails. He, so he, <laughs> well, in fairness, 
he's got a he's got this sort of dance to do because he wants to continue doing the scientific work, and he knows that two of the ships are somewhere. Uh, if he can find them, he can maybe re-outfit and retrofit and like do the and keep doing the science uh, on off the coast of Alaska and the Yukon. But as far as the Carlet goes, he pretty much just puts it out of his mind. Um, and then at that point, you know, the ship is moving pretty fast toward the uh, northwest and it's it's spookily following uh there's a drift that is known at that point um a, a ship that was captained by DeLong and the book that um Hampton Sides wrote called In the Kingdom of Ice talks about that journey where that that ship got encased in the ice very near Wrangell Island where these guys get marooned and it goes for like i don't know a, over a year and and nonsen the uh, norwegian legend had intentionally encased his ship the fram in ice to follow this same drift pattern to prove that that was the way the prevailing drift went and nonsen was clever enough i can never figure out why these people didn't learn from fritjof nonsen because he he designed a boat called the fram and he designed the hull to be rounded so that when inevitably the ice flows encased around your ship, it lifted the boat up onto the flow and then you've just got like a hotel, yep. you know? And so instead of instead of it. like crushing the ship. So, yeah. I mean, it never, never really understood why they didn't start building all of these ships that were going to be used in this way with rounded hulls. It's like, um, but they didn't. So anyway, now the story ends up being about like it toggles back and forth between w- what uh, I stay with Stephenson for a while to uh, follow his actions and inactions. And then the story goes to what happens to the members of the Karlik because it their saga is really only sure. just beginning. Yeah, yeah. You was know, Stephenson's plan to go overland to the rendezvous point or was that even, no? Yeah, well, so he he did, in fact. like He, he stopped up, by to visit his girlfriend. Just, oh, well, right. So there's <laughs> a, it turns out he had a uh, secret wife and child like this, <laughs> in Nupiet. And um, um, I theorized that that was partly what his thing was is that he was like, I'm like, I can either, I'm probably going to be on this ship for a year, maybe two. Uh, I don't, I'm like within 10 miles of land. I'm freaking out of here. I mean, you know, he makes a bunch of excuses about like the caribou hunt, but he, there was some suggestion that the caribou were sort of out of that area by then. Like, and he, they don't, they don't get a caribou ever. Like it's like, okay. So then he ends up reuniting with this, um, wife named Fanny that we'll call her his indigenous spouse. Uh, and they had a young son named Alex and he had left them a few years before and and then so he's going to reunite with her and then try to cobble together the remnants of this expedition for which he has, you know, convinced the Canadian government to give him many hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, he he had some uh, rationale yeah, to, yeah. like, make this thing work. The thing is, he I just find that his inaction around trying to, like, do anything about the car look um, ends up being why I view him as a little bit villainous, but I, not, I mean, he's, he becomes, I mean, he does great science, yeah. but he, anyway, so yeah. then the story becomes about like, what the hell happens to this ship floating in a square mile of ice across the Arctic ocean? 
Yeah, no, yeah, we can we can leave Stefan Stephenson yeah. behind, but um, leading up to it, what was interesting is he's doing media, <laughs> and the and he'll he says kind of like cryptic shit <laughs> that the people on the crew um, like he's a little fatalistic. About yeah. all the things that could go wrong, you know, and people on the crew keep reading, are reading like interviews from him. And right. like, this guy's out of his mind. And well, the, the, he's yeah, like the, quite comfortable with the fact that, you know, he's like, we, we may never return. Well, <laughs> and, and he says at one point, like the scientific inquiry, everyone on the crew and scientists know that the, um, that the goals of the expedition and the scientific information is much more important than either the ship or the lives of its members. <laughs> and they're like, wait, what? I'm one of those I people. signed up for this. <laughs> like, what? Hey, that's the wait, boat I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I'm going to die? Wait, is that what you're saying? And so, yeah, they're not happy and they have like, you know, they have big meetings. This is before they ever even leave. And, you know, some of them are saying like, I'm not going if that's the case, right? Like if that's his attitude. Well, also yeah. he makes them sign over, which was not uncommon at the time. Like they're all going to keep journals and diaries and stuff. Uh, thank goodness. Or I wouldn't have these books, you know. Um, but Stephens is like, oh, by the way, while he was in Europe organizing this trip, he's like made all these sweet publishing deals and and media deals with, um, you know, papers in England, the New York Times, the the Globe and Mail in Toronto. And he's like secured book rights and everything. And so he's like, oh yeah, you guys got to hand over all your journals and stuff. Um, so he decide, he's not going to get paid. They're all getting paid. So his rationale is, look, you're getting paid. I'm not getting paid as a member of this expedition, even though I'm the expedition leader, but I'm going to get paid on the back end on publishing rights. So he's organized this whole um, empire of, uh, of, of publishing. And, you know, they're reading about this in the paper also going, well, so wait, what about, uh, like, what about us? And he's like, you know, you signed, you signed the contracts. What can I tell you? <laughs> you know, like, get on the ship, man. <laughs> All right, so let's pick it back up yeah. with the Carlick. Right. So this is where the story, I think, gets really freaking good. I, I look at it in terms of like third of three stages of, of yeah. uh, what happens, right? So after Stephenson goes on his caribou hunt, you've got, I don't know, man, the numbers are elusive to me, but like 17, no, 20 some members are still on the ship. Um, you've got like 30 sled dogs, right? You got a couple of these skin umiaks that are pretty cool. You they got a house cat. Them. They got a house cat, Niger Rock, <laughs> who's just awesome, tough cat. Um, and they're floating really fast on this encased in ice toward Siberia, essentially, toward the north of Siberia. Now, they, they float for months, right? Now, this is not uncommon, like, you know. Um, and the ship is set up, right? So they've got, they're still trying to do some science, right? They're, they got this dredging um, mechanism and they build an igloo out off the ship and they, this one scientist, uh, Murray, is like hauling up all sorts of um, creatures and sea life that has never been seen before. They were doing legitimate science, but um, that ends up sort of falling apart because- And they got they, like that, like sextants and whatever the yeah, hell they yeah, use. They, they know where they're at. They're they, taking soundings of depth. And, yeah, they have uh, a, a general idea of where they are. Um, but the but now okay it's starting to get to be September October November December right so then in the weather you know now the lights gone uh, so now you've got basically Arctic night has fallen on them they can't you know they can't really take readings 
anymore. It's pretty much dark. And so they're floating along. They celebrate like Christmas on the ship. They're out there. What I love too is that, you know, they're, they're doing some really interesting things. They got this, um, character who's on the ship named Bjarn Mom, and he's only 22 and he's a Norwegian, um, guy who, who's really into skiing. He was a ski champion. So he's like teaching all the, he's teaching Captain Bartlett and all the other scientists how to ski, right? He, they build jumps and stuff kind of unwise because <laughs> Bartlett like bites it at one point and almost breaks his hip. You know, he's like, probably don't need the captain, you know, doing Nordic ski jumping here, <laughs> right? It's like, what the hell? And, but you know, they're living, they got enough food. They, they, you know, they're, the living quarters, uh, are fine. They shoot some polar bears. They shoot a couple polar bears en route. Um, they go duck hunting. One of the scenes I really love is that they, they had these Peterborough canoes that were on the ship that they were going to be using. They were going to sort those out at Herald Island. <laughs> And they were going to use them on the Mackenzie River Delta. But so they take these out in some of the, they start noticing a lot of ducks out there, right? So the couple of the Inuit members who they had hired on at Barrow, Point um, Barrow, are doing a lot of seal hunting. And Bartlett and one of the couple of the scientists are, are like, well, look, there's a bunch of ducks out there. And they did have some shotguns. So they end up taking these Peterborough canoes out in the, in the open leads. And it's pretty cool. Like they set behind these ice hummocks as a blind and then they go flush up a bunch of ducks. And, you know, these, these guys were not practicing, uh, you know, game sportsmanship. They're like water sluicing sure, 50 yeah, yeah. ducks, you know, they won't need them for food. So they, they get a bunch of ducks and, and, um, they're shooting, they shoot a few polar bears. Um, I was surprised too that they're eating those bears raw. Yeah, sometimes oh, wow. they, yeah. I mean, avoid the liver though. Yep. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, yeah, get it, yeah. Explain that about the, the, well, so the, it can kill you. Yeah, the bears eat a high uh, portion of of seals, right? And so they end up having um, large quantities of vitamin A in their livers. It turns out It'll kill you, and if you eat. If you eat a bunch of this, it'll kill you. It's it's kind of cool because the the Inuit members of the expedition seem to know this, right? I I, I like there was a um, there are stories that were like of the um, what the heck's the name of that um, expedition, but of the uh, uh, the Dutch expedition that went in like 1587. But they these guys um, Barents William Barents like they didn't know, right? So they're they're eating they're eating bear livers and. Um, getting super sick and dying. Um, so yeah, they, they, you know, at this point there, Bartlett has decided like, okay, our goal now, they, they know generally from the, the, the logs of DeLong, the trip that like had to go 10 months more in case and ice, it blew by Wrangell Island and never was in striking distance of it. So they missed it. Bartlett knows that that Wrangell Island is really the only hope if they're going to make it to land once they start moving 30 to 60 miles a day in the, in the drift and, and current. And as it happens, they, they, they reach a certain point where they're probably within 125, 150 miles of it. And they, they're able to see it. Okay. At, at, at a certain point, but, but, the problem is now larger flows are starting to encroach around the flow that they're on and they're, they're, they're going to get pinched. They're, they know they're going to get uh, probably crushed, right? So Bartlett has the good sense to begin offloading a whole bunch of gear, food, sleds. They build kennels for the dogs. 
you know, very organized. And like he's pot- getting ready to take a walk. He's getting ready. If this thing, if the boat ship gets crushed, we're going to have to live on the ice for a while. Right. And so, um, it takes a little while, right? So there's some false alarms that the, these fang like, you know, teeth of ice to crush into the side, but then they're pumping, they're able to pump it out for a while. They actually are able at one point to um, unload a bunch of the stuff in the, in the Carlick rises up. So it's not as imperiled. And that sort of the picture on the cover is, is when it was a little bit up higher and they got ice blocks of stuff shoring it up. Eventually, that's all, you know, the ice is way too powerful and the ship gets crushed. And by that time, though, Bartlett has had the great forethought to have, you know, a year's worth of food and gear. And they built some igloo shelters and they, with a lot of the crates and stuff, they have one, it's called the box house. So they have- Manufactured sleds. Yeah. They manufactured some uh, Perry style sleds while still on the Carlick and they've got dogs. So Bartlett's thinking is, okay, if I can, if the ship gets crushed, when the ship gets crushed, we're going to have to live on the ice until March when the light gets good enough to travel again. Right. And so invariably the ship does get crushed. Um, it's a great scene though. I, I, I love the scene where Bartlett's got a flair for the dramatic, right? So he's, he's in the, he's in the galley. No, everyone's off on the, at the box house and the ice house They're They've taken everything off there. They've got their, um, beds, you know, sleeping situations set up and Bartlett's like stays in the, the galley and he's got like a phonograph and he's playing record after record and then theatrically kind of throwing them into the fire, you know, and he saves, he saves Chopin's funeral march for the last one. And it, you know, I would love to see this in a film like great. Cause he's like, puts it on, you know, and it's got this like dirge thing. You could death is coming. Like, and then he goes out onto the rail. If you the saw last this one. scene in a movie, you would think this oh, is over the top. Calm down, dude. Yeah. Like, what are you doing, man? And he stands on the rail and then, you know, right as funeral march is playing, the notes are drifting off into the Arctic wind. I milk this pretty hard, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, he, he steps off and the car, I mean, it's kind of bizarre, like to think you're sitting there, the ship you've been on for a few months, it, there it is. And like when it goes down, you know, it's like they've raised the flag to full mass and then it's like, it goes down. The flag goes down. Everybody's watching, and then the steam spout is like, you just see, and then all of a sudden, your ship's gone, and you're on the ice, going, okay, now what, right? Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to, okay? It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame 
instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. I want to tell you about an American made success story and Black Buffalo's award winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco, and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. The story becomes about, to me, I think that one of the coolest elements is that Bartlett's driven, he understands kind of the situation, which is I've got to get these people to land. Now, Stephenson later argues, and I think incorrectly, that they should have probably bolted like he did way earlier um, across the ice. But Stephenson was already um, a very skilled uh, ice traveler. He and he had lived with, you know, the Inuit and he he knew how to do it in small teams. You know, you've got like 15, 17 people, only a few of them had any uh, experience on ice. Bartlett and this guy named John Hadley that they had picked up in Barrow also. Um, And other than that, you know, these are not experienced Arctic travelers, except the Inuit that they were with, uh, that they had brought, who basically save all their lives. Uh, But 
so Bartlett knows, okay, at some point, I'm going to have to get all these people to Wrangell Island if, if we get close enough to it. And then I'm going to probably have to go myself with maybe one of the two um, Inuits, Kuruluk and Kataktovic, and take them across the long strait south to Siberia and then go somehow get word to the larger world that they're, we're marooned on Wrangell Island, or they're marooned on Wrangell Island. Because he reasons that not going en masse with 20-some people is not going to work. Yeah, and only one, as far as they know, only one white guy has ever been there. Or yeah. One I group mean, of white, like Muir, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, John Muir, the, the naturalist, you know, had like written the only real first descriptions of the place, right? Yeah, and it's interesting that they know, too, that, that Wrangell Island has driftwood. Right. And another island doesn't have driftwood. Yeah, Harold Island doesn't have driftwood, and it's small and uninhabitable. But it's really close. It's like within 30 miles of Wrangell Island. And then Wrangell Island is, I mean, it has populations of polar bear. It has populations of walrus. It ends up having a, lo- a lot of um, wildlife. Um, but let me, hit, that, let me hit you with another quick Stephenson yeah. thing from my life with the Eskimo. When he's up in the high Arctic, he's on, he, he's with hunters who have never seen a tree. But they have driftwood. Their explanation of what driftwood is, they think it's a plant that grows under the water. Seems reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. And he's like, it's shit. It's pro- he speculates that it's trees washing out Mackenzie Delta, going into the Arctic Ocean, landing on these islands. And then you just like, I don't know where that shit came from. And right. Like, it's, a, it's a seaweed. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you have no way. I mean, you've never seen a tree. Yeah, it just it just, well, and by the way, there are no there are no trees on Wrangell Island, so the driftwood you know has has come from other places, yeah. right? And you know, luckily they know that from these these logs that they had, and yep. um, and so that you know Bartlett understands that basically, if I can get them all to Wrangell Island, I got to go then for help, right? And then that's a whole other ordeal. So the book essentially toggles between, I mean, first of all, getting to Wrangell Island from, after they take all the stuff off the ship, that place is called, they name it Shipwreck Camp. <laughs> you know, it's like, makes sense. And so they're like, they, they, they've got a complicated problem, which is that they've got a year's worth of food. Yeah, you can't move you it. You can't move it. Like, you can move some of it. And fuel, right? So there's an odyssey of getting from shipwreck camp to Wrangell Island. And then the other odyssey of Bartlett trying to go get help. Well, real quick, hit those dudes that, that tried the, the other guys that pieced out. Right. So, um, is really while they're drifting along, Stephenson's left. And, you know, during the dark night, things are starting to get, you know, as they do on a ship, like some people are getting freaking cabin fever and some people are like, you know, uh, we're in close proximity. There's arguments and the scientists, uh, three of them, uh, one is named, uh, Murray, one is named McKay. Um, and this other Frenchman named Henri Beauchat. And those three guys, um, the two guys, um, Forbes, uh, McKay, and Murray had been with Shackleton on a 1909 expedition. So 
in the, in those expeditions, they didn't use dogs. They like manhauled, right? So harnesses on you, and you're pulling lighter loads, right? And so, for a number of reasons that aren't fully explained, like why they're so adamant, um, these three guys decide we want to leave the Carlick. Just okay. go it alone. We want to go it alone. And Bartlett is in a tough spot because you know, in if. If this were a military situation, he would be able to say, like, you you can't leave the ship. I'm in command of you and the ship. But because they were scientists hired by Stephenson, it was sort of a gray area. And Bartlett um, decides that he's going to support them in their decision. I mean, there were some murmurings of mutiny and stuff at a certain point. but And actually, the three guys asked this other uh, Norwegian guy um, if he will go with them. And he's really become close to Bartlett and he's devoted to him. And he's like, basically, if you ask me again, we're going to have a problem. You know, like, I'm not going with you and um, you know, quit, quit asking me about it. But so they end up um, striking off on their own and before Bartlett and the rest of them head for Wrangell Island. Now, what's kind of cool is that they have built a series of, in knowing that they have to transport all this gear and food uh, in the direction of Wrangell Island, they built a bunch of, like a relay system of igloos, maybe 10 miles apart. It's kind of cool, really smart. Because, you know, if you keep going back and forth and bringing some stuff, setting up caches, coming back to shipwreck camp and then going forward again and moving to and building another igloo, you're also creating a kind of trail, you know, there's a lot of wind blown activity. And so, and, and so it doesn't stay completely there, but they, they mark these igloos with uh, flattened pemmican tins so that they can hopefully see them. Um, but these three guys decide to go it alone and, um, they don't take dogs, even though Bartlett offers them dogs, because they had were used to the man hauling technique that they used with Bartlett. Makes some sign of things saying yeah. a waiver. <laughs> yeah, he makes some sign of things saying we've decided to take off. Yeah, but are they, not are, my fault. <laughs> are they going to do the same thing the rest of the crew is going to do, or are they just they got a different plan? They got a different, different plan, plan. And, and they said, well, we, we think we're going to use some of the igloos on our way, but their plan is to is to head south. Either they were kind of clueless because they didn't at this point they didn't exactly know, you know, to the spot where they are. They have a general notion that they're like, you know, one hundred miles west of Wrangell Island. But I mean it's a pretty big space out there. So they they end up going uh on their own. There's a really, really grim scene in which um Bartlett continues to uh, send out his own small teams that are going to try to make it over in in like relays to Wrangell Island. And they come across these guys after like a week or 10 days um, on one of their forays. And I mean, it's a really grim scene, you know, like two guys are sitting there. Uh, one guy's hand is out of its glove. Um, and this is Murray, you know, and he has cut himself with a pemmican tin and he's got like infected hand, right? It's all swollen up and, um, they're, they're barely moving. They're all, you can tell their faces are all frostbitten. They don't really know what direction they're going. And the other guys from Bartlett's teams are, you know, they're on dog sleds and they're, they're like, you guys need help. Right. And they say, well, we, we decided to do it alone. The, a mile behind them is this French guy, Henri Beauchat, who, um, 
is just in a dire situation. They re- and they, there's all this strewn gear, like they've been lightening their load, so it's like you know a yard sale. And on you said ice. <laughs> you said they'd only been out there like a week at that. Yeah, point? a week to ten days, and uh, and and they're you know, but they're frozen. Like they haven't been um, taking good care of themselves. Like what you need to do is each night get to an igloo or build an igloo, set up a primus stove eat food, stay warm, stay dry if you can, and hope that, of course, that the ice doesn't crack underneath your igloo, which it often did, you know. Um, and then so they they come across like this strewn gear and everything, pemmican, and they come across this Henri Beauchat guy, and he's he's just, his feet are halfway out of his mucklucks, his, his gloves are, mittens are off, you know, his hands are like black and necrotic and pustules, and he's like the... They're like, we need to take you back to shipwreck camp. Get on the sled. And he says, you know, let me die. Um, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. Um, and, you you know, then they just like cluck the dogs on and head out. It's kind of. Yeah, and those dudes never seen again. It's just like never seen again. You know, in fairness, Bartlett sort of makes token efforts to look for them a couple times. But um, four other guys get stranded on, um, the, on Herald Island, which they – they came to accidentally, you know, they were trying to reach Wrangell Island and they ended up on Harold Island, Harold Island, which is that really small, inhospitable, no driftwood, no food place. And they, those guys, um, are screwed, you know? Yeah. When did someone find their bodies? It's like 1926, I'm thinking. So someone just lands on the island, takes a walk and there's. Yeah. And they, this, uh, they were U.S., um, U.S. expedition, and they, um, I, I believe they were, they had the notion of finding out if they were st- oh, if still there. They, yeah. were, they were aware of them. They were aware of them, and you know, so it's like. But what's what's interesting is that that so four four members. Bartlett's trying to get everybody over to Wrangell Island, but during the during these relay halls, um, at one point, Mammon Bjorn Mammon, the Norwegian member of the team. Um, he gets uh, disoriented and he ends up like within um, two miles of Harold Island. And at this point, everyone's in, Mammon is in pretty bad condition. You know, he's like dislocated his knee and they're, they don't have that much food left. He realizes he's at the wrong island. So he decides uh, after consultation with the other members of that little advance team that he's going to go back to shipwreck camp and these guys can stay. They're within like two miles of this island, but um, there's there's an open leads of water between it and the island at the moment. So he has to make a hard decision, right? He's kind of um, the leader of this little team, and he says, "I'm going back to shipwreck camp. You guys make it here." And then they write letters to Bartlett saying, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay here as long as I can, as long as we can. Come try to get us. If we don't." hear from you, we'll eventually make it over to Wrangell Island ourselves. How are they all kind of getting split up into different well, groups? Well, I mean, it's really, um, what's interesting about that is like, you know, if you think about the polar sea, a lot of times you imagine it being flat, you know, and what is so remarkable about this landscape seascape is how ruptured and undulating and, uh, you know, difficult. It you're is. not walking in a straight like line. Like hundred foot, yeah. hundred foot pressure ridges. Yeah. You're, you're having yeah. to go around. So, stuff, yeah. and also, you know, the light, that's, that's a really great question though. You know, there are, there are also, um, 
experiencing a lot of um, Arctic mirages, right? There are these um, like uh, celestial conditions make it so that um, something out there will appear to be a landmass and it's like, uh, you know, water sky that has come up over open water and, uh, you know, it sort of looks like a landmass and it's like a, an optical illusion. So that's part of it. Um, the conditions of trying to navigate are really hard because um, the ice is continually breaking up. And so you can't go in a straight line. You have to follow leads till they narrow and then cross there. Um, and so they end up getting quite disoriented and, uh, in a number of instances, but once they have this sort Can of- I hit with another Stephenson tidbit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah you're, your guy. <laughs> Stephenson talked about yeah. one time stalking a grizzly bear that wound up being a ground squirrel. <laughs> when well, talking about, he talked about how deceptive oh, the Arctic light is. Yeah. And there's another guy that was like, I can't remember which way it was. Like, they, they think they're looking at an island and it has two glaciers. It's a walrus's head sticking out of the water. That's how in, in terms of are. like just distances, yeah, and mirage, yeah, and then and then when the light comes, all the snow blindness, snow blindness, and, and everything's blowing. So yeah, it's and also you're not um, the conditions are such that they're not able to take really accurate readings, right? And then the, and then not to mention the the ice that you're on is moving, you know, sometimes right. great distances, like. So, so that all contributes to um, the difficulty. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm glad you brought up the pressure ridges because one of the most badass things they do in this book is that once they decide, okay, we're making a break for Wrangell Island, um, they encounter w when the shore ice, when, when, when this floating sea ice gets within proximity of maybe 30 miles of Wrangell Island, it starts bumping up against these extended spits, right? And so the ice that's hitting, it's kind of like a wave, a frozen wave. Mm -hmm. So the ice is, is hitting the shoreline far out of offshore. And buckling and out. Buckling yeah. and then growing, growing. And like some of them are up to 100 feet high. And there's some really cool pictures in the book of like them standing on these things. And you realize, oh my God, so... They have to now get sleds and everything over these things. And Bartlett, when he encounters them, uh, a couple of the other guys had gone like maybe one or two miles each direction. And the thing extends for 10 or 20 miles, this long ridge of ice. And he's like, well, we're going to have to cut our way through it. That's it, right? So then they take it takes them like four days to hack a trail a, and and with the dogs and ice axes and shovels, hike a tr hack a trail through this series of ridges, and they do some clever things like they tie a rope between two sleds, and then they'll get one of the sleds up. The top of these ridges are really uh, terrifying and precipitous. Like if you fall down, you could well be dead or battered at the bottom. So they take these sleds and they get one to the top, and then they using men and dogs, they push it over, and then it pulls the other sled behind it the weight of that sled pulls the other sled up and then they disentangle that one or untie them and then do it again. It takes them, you know, weeks, weeks to get from shipwreck camp to Wrangell Island. And at that point, you know, all ideas of them all making it across the long straight to Siberia are out the window because they're in quite bad shape. He, makes, a, he makes an interesting call here. And this is where I'm at in the book. So from here on out, I'm, I'm uh, you're, you're on your own. But 
He makes an interesting call at Wrangell Island where he wants everyone to break up into really small groups and spread out all over the place. Yeah, well, the theory... Which is, it seems so weird to me. Well, well his rationale is uh, Bob Bartlett decides very quickly when he lands on Wrangell Island. So, so first of all, they find driftwood, So, and they've got some... Um, they have brought with them some tents, right, from the ship. They brought these bell tents. They're kind of like yurts, right? Yep. Big ones, though, big, big yurts. Um, and some other canvas um, tents. But at first, they it's more conducive to, it's March when they land, March March 12th, uh, 1914. And at first, that they decide, like, we'll build igloos, right, because the, um, they're efficient. Um, so Barlett determines, okay, there's driftwood. There um, is... Some game. They have been encountering seals, but the seals are quite offshore. Uh, and then some Arctic foxes and some bears that they have encountered in. Usually the bear situation was like, they're not hunting bears. The bears are kind of hunting Kill them, them right in camp, man. <laughs> you know, the bears have been following them. Or the bears yeah. will be duking it out with the dogs. Right. And the bears like, and they'll, there's they'll some kill gnarlies. the bear while he's duking it out yeah. with the dog pack. There's some really close encounters though. Like oh, where yeah. one guy Hadley has to like, snag his rifle, like while the bear is trying to get to the dogs and he's on the other side of the sled, you know, and he's like grabbing his rifle within feet of a freaking 10 foot polar bear. <laughs> you know, when <laughs> like, they, when they gourmet butcher a polar bear, they like the back legs, the back straps and the heart. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There's Not the no, lever. there's no human presence on Wrangell Island. No, and by the and, way, and to does this it day. get visited at all? <laughs> um, from you know, that's the last known place that had woolly mammoths. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that cool. 4, so years also, ago, there's so. like a very yes, some people, most yeah. people say four yeah. somewhere yeah. in that area, right? Like a dwarf woolly mammoth. Yeah. Yeah. But so that's a really good question. Um, at that time 1914 there's no residents on Wrangell Island and even to this day um there there's like a couple of so it's it's Russian yeah the Ruskies own, Ruskies own it but um there they have like one full-time resident one or two full-time residents and then I was really bummed man I, I had almost went to Wrangell Island twice first time my trip got scuttled so there's a couple of um expedition companies that take you um in in like a 50 person um you know, ship and then you get off on Zodiacs and you can go camp for a few days on Wrangell Island with these nature, um, uh, naturalists and That'd be cool. uh, rangers. It'd be really cool. Had it set up, uh, pandemic scuttled that. And then I was going to go the next summer and Putin invaded, uh, Ukraine. And then like, it's, they weren't going to call that Russia. Got, yeah. We can't go to Russia. So that was kind of a, a bummer. But so then Bartlett, you're right. He made the call that like these people. So in getting across the pressure ridges and getting over from shipwreck camp to Wrangell Island, um, some of the members are in pretty bad condition. Now I will say the Inuit members, Kuraluk, his wife, uh, Kirik, who's nicknamed Auntie and the two kids, Helen and Mugpy are like, nothing, it's like that nothing has happened to them. They're in absolutely great yeah, shape. Yeah, I love they got little kids and the little kids are always playing. The little kids are playing <laughs> and they got the cat. You know, Everybody else is like dying. The kids are like running around. <laughs> They're like, I don't see the problem. Um, eat seal blubber and have really nice Arctic clothing. You know, but um, you could blame Stephenson in part for this because he he brought Auntie along, Kirok, to sew Arctic clothing and then but he bought a bunch of the skins pretty late in the game. So like she's sewing and teaching the members to sew while they're still floating along. And they didn't like, they weren't fully kitted out all the members. Anyway, Barlow makes the call that like these people are 
too tired, frostbitten, uh, and to make and inexperienced to make it across. It's about a hundred miles from the southern coastline of Wrangell Island to Russian uh, northeastern. What Siberia. is the disease they're getting? So that's yeah, it's interesting that they they start coming down within days after Bartlett leaving with Kataktovic. They start coming down with this swelling sickness, so their limbs are getting really. Um, their limbs are some of their hands and feet are swelling to like twice their normal size. And the there's two theories. One is that the pemmican that they had was somehow flawed, and the ratio of fat to protein was wrong. I mean, not not good enough, so that they begin to get. Um, what's called nephritis, or it's like a inflammation of the kidneys, um, an imbalance. You know, they've got mm. like a, a dietetic imbalance, but it's freaking everybody out because it's not scurvy because um, they're getting some meat, you know, here and there with the Arctic foxes, the seals, and the polar bears. Um, but then, you know, th- they start to. So that's the other thing. Stephenson doesn't know that, like, he's like, well, they should have all gone with Bartlett. Bartlett just leaves with one Inuit guy, Kataktovic. The problem is, he, you know, it, it'd be like taking all your buddies and they're, they're in terrible shape and they can't go. Like, you know, they're, they're no longer fit for this trek across the ice that's going to be dangerous itself. To go fetch a boat. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, in a very roundabout way, go fetch a boat. Yeah. yeah. When would they have been, like, considered missing or well, like how long would it have been? So Stephenson makes land in like October uh, or late September, early October of 1913. And eventually he does, he sends word to the Canadian government that, uh, oh, I've lost my ship. Yeah, but no, he has no idea where it is. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea where my ship is, but it'll probably be fine because they have these umiaks, which are skin boats. And- you know, Stephenson's thinking more like he, what he would do, and but he would only do this alone or with a really small team. With him and two into a hunters. Yeah, he's yeah. not going to do it with like a bunch of inexperienced people. So he reports to the Canadian government that like the flagship Carlick is gone. It it will it will either be crushed. Most likely, it will be crushed, or it's going to like bypass. Uh, Wrangell Island and end up like somewhere else. I love, yeah, there, there's this, there's this, I, I forgot about that. When he's talking about the, like in some number of years, right. when you're all dead, it'll spit you out like in Greenland. <laughs> yeah. And it says, I love his line. He says, it'll like, sp- go around the Arctic and it'll like spit you out, but it takes a few years. Yeah. It says either, either them or their wreckage. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. oh, great. So look, so they, and, they were going west, but watch to the east. Are the, are the other <laughs> two, back. are the other two ships, meanwhile, just like they've gotten where they were supposed to go and they're just hanging out waiting? Or? Right. So when Stephenson arrives back on mainland uh, Alaska, he he's cruising along the coast and he runs into some of the people that actually that he had known from a, the previous expedition he was on. And they have, you know, they're hearing uh, stories of like there's reports, okay? Uh, yeah, the Alaska and the Mary Sachs have been seen and they're actually wintering over in this bay before Harold Island, but they're safe. So he learns that those two ships are safe. So at that point, Stephenson decides, okay, I'm going to re-outfit 
what's called the New Northern Party. And <laughs> that other one, that's the old Northern Party, and they're screwed. It's like, <laughs> it's like Rumsfeld's old Europe, right? It's like, well, they're still your people. Um, but anyway, he's like, I got this. I'm going to... I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. He's also really clever because he knows from where he is how long it takes mail to get to the Canadian government. It has to go by like dog sled and it's, he knows that it's going to leave like by December 1st or something. And then it's going to take a couple months to get to the Canadian government. So by the time he knows that by the time they get the report that the car looks gone and I'm re-outfitting he will already have done it. Like he'll already be out on the ice doing his thing and they can't really say, don't do that. Right. Yeah. And he, he does some pretty um, devious things. Like he's got a, he's got an open checkbook. Right. So he arrives at one of these um, trading posts and it turns out the guy is basically leaving cause he's been there too long and he can't stand the winners anymore. And he's like selling everything. Sevenson like buys it all. And he goes to another guy and he's like, finds the guy has a really cool schooner. So he's like, Hey, can I buy that schooner? And he, he writes him a check for like 13 grand, right? On top of the two sh ships that he's already bought. Um, yeah, the numbers are astronomical what he ends up spending. Right. But so Stephenson quickly, um, regroups and he, he has like, he has it out with, um, the, the expedition leader of the Southern party, this guy, Dr. Anderson. Um, and, you know, Dr. Anderson sees that Stephenson, first of all, he's like, w where's your ship? Why, you know, and why aren't you going to do anything to go find them? And Stephenson's like, I can't do anything. Nobody can go there until summer, right? That part of the world, you've got like a six week, maybe window where there's going to be open water and some of these places are accessible. But at this point, they don't even know where the Carlick is. So Stephenson is right to say like, there's nothing I can do about it personally right now, except to say we should be organizing rescue missions for next summer, right? Anyway, he goes off onto the ice, uh, re-outfits, grabs a couple Norwegian dudes and goes off and um, continues to do, you know, ethnological and um, scientific study and just sort of bid, bids goodbye to the Karluk. And by the time he ultimately gets back, Oh, by the way, he re he abandons his wife and child again <laughs> after yeah. being with them for a little while. Um, it's a touching scene of good farewell. <laughs> um, anyway, so Stephenson's doing that, and then and then the the book takes off onto where it really picks up. I think uh, momentum is after Bartlett leaves with this Catactobic guy. Yeah, so let me let they me have an ordeal. Yeah, let's let's just yeah so. They get to Wrangell Island. He leaves everybody. Most There's people like 15 are 15 people. Leaves them in Wrangell Island. Gives them instructions, written instructions. Do yep. this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to split. Watch for me in su such and such harbor. Rogers in, uh, July, harbor. July, August. Watch for me to come back with a boat. Right. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, 
You can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. And I, I should answer your previous question. So when they got to Wrangell Island, Bartlett's um, rationale was if we set up, they're, they're on the northern, the northeastern tip of Wrangell Island. It's only like 90 miles wide and, you know, 50 or 60 miles um, top to bottom. Um, so Bartlett's rationale is that there, if we spread out and have some people at Icy Spit, which is where they land, there's another place called Cape Waring. It's about midway. And then there's Rogers Harbor, which is the southern uh, western point of the island. He figures that if we distribute people in different teams, they can have better luck uh, hunting in smaller groups and, and taking care of themselves rather than having to have, you know, cook for 15 people every day. Mm-hmm. So smaller groups and also it will... 
um, it'll distribute the hunting um, landscape a little more spread out. That's his rationale. Yeah, yeah. Now, then, so, right, the, he ends up, like, uh, on a race. The book becomes, like, a race against time because Barla needs to get across the Long Strait to Siberia and then somehow get all the way over to the east and find a ship to cross the Bering Strait and get back to Alaska where he can send a telegram to tell <laughs> them they're on Wrangell Island. Right. So their lives, like at every moment, are kind of dependent on whether Bartlett makes it. And so I yeah, cut I wanna, back I wanna, and forth. That's the thing I wanted to ask you about yeah. is it it's like if Bartlett and his Inuit hunter, like, you know, you got all these people dying and stuff happened. Like if they had just gone off ten miles and fell into a lead and died. Yeah. It's reasonable to assume no one on no one on Wrangell Island is gonna survive. I think maybe the the Inuits would have, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but because uh, there's an anecdote I'll get to. Because the they could have been, they could have been there anyway. Right, yeah. right. I mean, y- you know, it's not ideal because um, of how remote it is. But um, yeah, so Bartlett, yeah, you know, there's it becomes it's sort of this race against time where Bartlett is trying to get to mainland Siberia and then to get word to the world that there's a bunch of stranded people from the Karluk on Wrangell Island, and you cut back and forth to what's happening with them on Wrangell Island and things begin to, so they, you know, they don't have a finite amount of, um, or they do have a finite amount of food, um, that they've been able to bring. And they make a couple, um, gnarly treks back to shipwreck camp to, to get more, uh, some really, some really dangerous, um, treks where the leads break open and they get guys, guys get, so oh, I don't want to ruin it for you. Guys get separated from, uh, each other and from there and the dog has to like lead them back, you know? So things are starting to, uh, deteriorate on Wrangell Island in that, um, their physical condition is poor and they're not, they're hunting constantly, but they're not able to procure enough food. They can just barely stay ahead, you know? Yeah, and the uh, woman and the kids, like I'd, I'd read an essay you wrote about this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where the woman and the children wound up being some of the primary procurers yeah. of game. Yeah, it's so it's really cool. Kur- Kuraluk, uh is the uh, husband and father of the two children. And so he's really good hunter. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's getting seals. Uh, it, it, seals start to go offshore, so it's, it gets harder to get seals. And as things become um, more dire and they're running out of food, Auntie is really industrious. Like she figures out how, first of all, Curlook, you know, fashions some um, bows and arrows because they're going to run out of ammunition too. So he starts to figure like if we can if we can shoot um, Arctic foxes and and um, birds with arrows, that'll save us ammo because we're going to need the ammo the the bullets for walrus, bears, seals, bigger things. And so, but Auntie is really really clever. So she figures out how to um, uh, jig for cod. She takes a sewing needle and bends it and then hooks it up to some sinew twine. And then they stand over this little tidal crack and like snagging, um, these like 12 inch to 15 yeah, Tom, Tom, Cod. Yeah, Tom yeah. Cod. They're like yanking. They get a bunch of those. Um, she's, the kids do some really clever stuff. Uh, one of the girls, Helen, the 11 year old, uh, figures out how to put a piece of seal blubber onto a, a feather quill where, where you pull it out. Right. And then she uh, has that attached to a piece of string and chucks the, the blubber over there and that kind of hides and seagull come up and 
eat the blubber, the quill gets stuck in their throat and then she dr- drags it over and wrings its neck, you know? Um, that's like one seagull at a time. But the biggest hunting, um, I mean, kind of the uh, most uh, hunting that they do that's effective. Um, oh, also Curlook, uh, he creates snare tracks for uh, snare traps for Arctic foxes. Um, and he, he builds two things. Uh, one, he builds a kayak. Um, which is a really cool. I mean, there's there's a, a there's an image of him working with the Scotsman William McKinley that they had a camera, you know, like they have a picture of him yeah, building. So it's the kayak, crazy that they could like take snapping pictures I, now and then. I know, yeah. like, and so he takes a couple of weeks, uh, and he it's really funny because he's hedging. Like they're they're starting to run out of food, and they're like, they hear walrus in the bay, and they're like, if we can get a walrus or two, we're we're set. Like. You know, now it's getting to be August. They're thinking if winter hits again, we're screwed. We're going to die here. Um, so he he builds a kayak, and Auntie is awesome. Like has has gotten all these skins from the bearded seal, the ugruk, and um, you know he he uses an ads. and you know uh, he uses a hatchet as an ads, and he has like you know a skinning knife. And some snow knives, and they—he's able to fashion, you know, find driftwood planks and stuff, and fashions out the the frame, and then they bring it inside the one of the wall tents, and uh, Auntie like completely fabricates the skin outside of this kayak. But Curluck has been like hedging because he doesn't want—he's the only one who knows how to run uh, a kayak, and, and he builds a really nice two-handled paddle, you know. But he, he has no interest in being solo in the water with a 2,500 pound walrus, right? So he, he's here to like telling them, I don't really want to do it. <laughs> and they're finally like, you got to go get the walrus. We're, we can't do it, you know? He ends up, he ends up getting a walrus, uh, and, you know, but it's a small one and it doesn't last that long. So by, by the time, um, it's starting to get near late August, you know, they're into some, uh, rough rations. They're eating scurvy grass. You know, it's like, um, cochlearia. It's a, it's a little Arctic grass that has, uh, that actually named scurvy grass because the it's got some vitamin C in it. scurvy. Yeah. yeah. And then auntie is starting to make this stuff that one of the members names salad oil. So she takes like chunks of blubber and puts them in a skin poke or a little bag and puts the chunks of blubber in there and leaves them out to ferment. Mm-hmm. And then when that stuff gets all congealed and fermented, they open up the bag and dip other chunks of seal meat and blubber into it. Like, sure, uh, yeah. you know, and, and the, and the, uh, Inuit people are like, we're good. And, uh, <laughs> but, but like the other guys are like, I don't, you know, we really need something bigger. Um, so anyway, they start to plan, like they realize that the window for a ship getting there, um, Bartlett had told them that in mid July, someone needs to be at Rogers Harbor on the Southern point. And that's where, if a ship's going to come, that's where it'll, it'll meet you. Um, but you know, things are getting really sparse in terms of food. They know that the window is closing. And so they start planning, um, to, to go inland, follow this stream, go inland, build a cabin and, and sort of make their stand for winter on Wrangell Island, which is a really, um, daunting prospect, you know? Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, without giving away too much, um, Bartlett has, uh, conspired to send a rescue 
armada of ships. And then, so these people are dying on Wrangell Island, essentially, or are going to die. And unless Bartlett gets these ships to them in a really tight window. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's probably not known, but what, prov- why don't the, when things get real bad, why don't the Inuit just like, what's preventing them from just taking off? You know, that's like, a really good question. They have the skill set to take, like they can make boats, they know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's an, there's a, um, a, a kind of ethical standard, like they, they were hired. You know, yeah, yeah. they were hired to do a job. Um, Cause just like pulling the weight for all those people, you think at a point you'd be like, I don't know if you, I don't know oh, if you yeah. guys would do this for me. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Know? So the other thing I forgot to tell you though, is that like, so, so Curlook, um, you know, they, they stay and they're, you know, they probably do realize like I'm, we're doing most of this, but though Hadley is a pretty good hunter. McKinley's a good hunter. This guy, Ernest Chafe, he's young. He's, he was the mess room boy on the Chicago. He's like 19 and he brought with him his shooting medals from competitions yeah, that yeah. he'd won. He's sort of badass. And so he ends up being pretty good. But what, one of the things that, that at wearing Cape wearing, um, there's all these cliffs and they're filled with thousands of crow, they name them crow bills, but they're ox yep. or mewers. Um, so they're on these cliffy, you know, they're like little kind of penguiny looking birds, but they, you know, great diving duck, um, diving muir. And, and so they're up there and they realize, okay, there's a lot of meat there. We can get it if we can get it. So they, um, they use driftwood and, and rope and they build this ladder that McKinley, who's this little, they call him a wee Mac. He's only weighs like a buck 30. So a little dude, but he's spry. And so they're, he's going to climb up these ladders and get they, you know, they, they don't have shotguns. Another thing they, they blew, but they have rifles. So they get up to where these crowbills, uh, ox are nesting and they're in the thousands. So, and they, they're still, they're getting the eggs and they're shooting as many as they possibly can. Right. One time McKinley like falls off the ladder and goes battering down onto the snow and ice. And he's luckily nothing breaks, but he's all bruised. And then they build this other thing, like a bosun's chair. The plan is they're going to lower him, hike around and then lower him down. You know, McKinley's like, I don't know about this gig, (laughs) you know? Um, but so they're able to like subsist and they also, um, Curluck figures out that they have the buried under snow. They had this net from the Carluck. And so the, they noticed that ducks are starting to, um, you know, pool up in some of the larger leads. So they go out there, sneak up on the edge of a lead and they take in unison, like three of guys will throw this net and scoop up a bunch of birds. But you know, the birds are not big enough where that's going to, um, you know, that's like a couple days it gets you through. Yeah, yeah. So that all that's happening while Bartlett is on his odyssey. Now at this point, we're the only three people who died, like the, the three that took off, those are the only people that had died up to this point. Well, those three we know. Uh, the other guys that went to the wrong Harold island. Island. And oh, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're, prob- so, they're probably dead by yeah. then. No, so there's some other okay. carnage. Uh, yeah, stuff. I don't <laughs> want to give anything away, but I'm just trying to. I mean, to, it's really don't want to give anything away. Uh, it's really sad, yeah. man, because so in the split up, Icy Spit, Waring Point in the middle, and then the other place, Rogers Harbor. So some, Bjarn Mammon, the Norwegian guy, Templeman, the cook, uh, and this other guy, George Malik, who is one of the scientists, there they end up at Rogers Harbor, and the hunting is not not good there. They get some Arctic foxes, but they they're and they're also in really bad shape. So 
um, that scene at Rogers Harbor becomes um, a, a like really dire, almost like the Greeley expedition. And that's going on while everyone's yeah. on. Yeah, and so Island. a couple times it's really sad. Like McKinley goes down there, and you know he realizes one of the guys from the, that's been. Um, at Mid Island, he gets down to them to check on how they're doing, and it's like not well. You know, they're like hallucinating and they're they're malnourished, and so McKinley tries to make this you know noble Herculean trek back to get different pemmican for Mammon who can't eat this stuff anymore, and find some more and bring him bring them food. And there's some really touching scenes where like McKinley has brought him like a can of condensed milk, you know, and he's like giving it to him like he's a little baby, you know, Ugh. and you're just like, oh my God, is, is this guy going to make it or not? You know, <laughs> got to read the book to find Good out. Good old Arctic Explorer yeah. stuff. That that was one of the um, uh, things I kept wondering is, uh, was there... At, during this period, were there any of these trips where everything just went like name for me one <laughs> that just went yeah. great? <laughs> That's a really good question. Like when you signed up, like when they so at this point they've been at it for a while. Like you're in the in the teens, nineteen teens, yeah, thirteen. People been up there dying for a long time. Like fifty percent. How are you getting anyone? To fund them. I've heard no, how like, it goes up there. Yeah, I'm like, not joining who, that. What are they looking at as the sort of like way it could go? Right. Well, so that's a really great question. Um, I, I mean, ironically, and I don't really want to say this because, you know, I'm I'm kind of anti-Stephenson on this whole thing. But so. Yeah, they're like, he, well, he did it. Yeah, he, I was, I I mean, was going to ask him about Stephenson in a sec, but yeah, go on. So he was able to, I mean, he had, he, he went... Uh, with this guy, Rudolph Anderson, who ends up um, being on this the Southern Party. Uh, and Stephenson had brought back, like, artifacts and it was for the American Museum of Natural History. So the things that, that Stephenson was bringing back and the findings that they were making about, like, maybe, you know, underscoring all of this is, like, a desire to find potentially new land and claim it for Canada. So that, you know, I think people's ability to um, fundraise and to be really um, convincing and persuasive. I mean, Perry was very good at it. Um, you know, some of, some of the expeditions had worked. I mean, Perry, even though it's contested now, um, had in 1909 made it to the North Pole. So you've got like- well, He didn't lose a bunch of guys. No, okay. no. And, no. you know, they- he did it better though. I mean, he brought a steel hulled icebreaker, the SS Roosevelt, right? So he, you know, um, so people could look at that and you could be like, you know, he did it. He did it. But also yeah. there's, there's a bit of a difference. Um, I think in, in all of the, in many of the expeditions leading up to this, like firsts were what they were about or discovery. Uh, of new lands, being the first to the North Pole, the first to farthest north, the first to go through the Northwest Passage. Um, this was one of the early, like, purely, it's going to be scientific in nature. And so it was worth it for the Canadian government. And also the Canadian government had sort of designs on, um, if we can expand our holdings, our land mass, that's good, you know, yeah, in yeah. terms of... Um, dominion over the North. Right. But so I think Stephenson's ability to persuade the, the Canadian government that this thing was going to be an unprecedented scientific, um, success. And 
in many ways it was because the work that he ends up doing, which I don't, I cover it briefly in the book because my interest was more about the Carlick and that story. But I mean, so Stephenson ends up continuing on. I mean, he conveniently like, so World War One breaks out like right as um, Bartlett and everybody, uh, you know, right right as the Wrangell Island fiasco is going on, and Stephenson conveniently uh, like goes onto the ice in like 1914 and conveniently sort of resurfaces to the world right, right as World War One ends. <laughs> it's like oh, good timing. <laughs> you know what happened what? while I was gone? <laughs> oh yeah, sure. give me a paper. The Great what? War. <laughs> Wait, what? Right, and so you know, a number of the other um, members like have to go serve and stuff. You know, so um, how did uh, um, I never looked this up? Ste- how does Stephenson end up? Like, how long does he live? Well, he lives he just forever, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, sixty-two. Yeah. What kills him? Um, he he dies of. Um, I don't think it's anything like cataclysmic, like cancer or anything. Like no just, one eats him or anything. No, yeah. no. But the funny thing is, and I, I have to add this because it, it has to do with your question about whether um, you know Curlook and his family could probably have survived or walked a hundred miles. Um, so. This is bizarre. Stephenson, you got to hand it to him. So he resurfaces, okay, and now he's he is his books are selling. He's writes he's written my life with the Eskimo, and he also writes the friendly Arctic, which is a, <laughs> <laughs> is a great title for a book in which most people a die. vacation. Guy. Yeah, yeah, that's him kind of laying out how you go about it. Right. Yeah. He's like, what the, you do is you take uh, off as soon as things look bad. Things go to shit. You go the other <laughs> you way. You go live with the Inuit who will keep you alive. And by the way, Amundsen, you know, the famous uh, Norwegian polar explorer, he he contests the friendly Arctic big time. He's like, this is actually irresponsible because you're you're making it sound like any Yehu can just go with a rifle and live off the ice, and it's like most of the people that try that are going to die, you know. Mm-hmm. Because but Stephenson, in fairness to him, he developed a great deal of skill in in living in this way. But so he does the most. Yeah, man. Bizarre. There's no. There's like no. Whatever you're saying about his like allegiances and in his his cavalier attitude about human life, you cannot deny. I mean, the guy could do insane shit. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and he he knew how to pick his company. Yep, that's smart. But but he could go and just go. Right. What he couldn't do was you know, uh, put together an expedition of this magnitude, right? Yeah. Uh, but you so, give him and a couple hunters and they would do some crazy shit. Well, yeah, yeah. So I was going to kind of follow up on that. Like there's so many variables and there's no way of knowing, obviously, but in your opinion, does this trip go a different way if Stephenson doesn't leave an, an, mm. from the get go? Um, or, or at least when he sees the ship has floated away, turns around and tries to find it. Maybe, again. yeah, because I mean, I think it, Stephenson um, might well have been able to get more of them to land. Um, he, he still would have been uh, challenged by the fact that most of the scientists and the crew members did not have um, Arctic ice na- skill. You know, yep. so the thing I was going to say though he, that. Um, that he does that's really a, a head scratcher um, is that so 1921, you know, like some years after this expedition, um, he decides he's going to 
organize another expedition to Wrangell Island, right? Um, and one of the survivors, this guy's name is Fred Maurer, uh, decides that he wants to go back to Wrangell Island because he had so much fun there the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephenson convinces him to do it. So he he gets like four, part of the rationale, and Stephenson wasn't really wrong about this, was that there he's already envisioning, I mean, Stephenson thought about some things, like he predicted polar flight to the, across the Arctic. Um, he predicted submarine uh, travel in that region. I was kind of, I was going to ask, was, was, this expedition kind of the end of an era. For- Absolutely. They call it the end of the dog sled adventurer, you know, oh. because it, things, you know, things began to change yeah, in terms technology, of technology. Yeah. But so Stephenson organizes this other trip. Now, the Canadian government wants no part of it, even though he was going to originally try to to claim Wrangell Island for Canada. Um, so he's become a Canadian citizen by this time. And he's like, well, um, we can plant the flag. Uh, it was kind of contested. So he... he I mean, nobody will pay. So he self-finances this thing from like his book proceeds. And he, uh, he sends Fred Maurer, one of the guys from the Carlook, these two other members and a woman also a seamstress. Her name is Ada Blackjack. This is a, you might want to read this book. It's freaking cool. Read Empire of Ice and Stone first, but then um, (laughs) I'll finish it. Yeah. So, um, they go to Wrangell Island it's things go south they they you know as they do and they realize they're not going to they're not going to make it and so i think it could, uh, when things go south in the north might be a good name for a, <laughs> yeah, for a exactly. good book you know yeah uh, so anyway Maurer, the guy from the carlook and this other guy decide to they they know well bartlett did it with Kataktovic. we're going to strike across the long strait to go they they're running out of food and it's just not going to work either this uh, this is 1921 they leave uh, Ada Blackjack with the one other member, these two guys strike for Siberia and die out on the ice. And Ada Blackjack nurses this guy who has scurvy uh, for a while until he dies in her arms. She lives on Wrangell Island by herself for a year. Hmm. Like, figuring out Ada how... Ada Blackjack. Ada Blackjack. I'll um, marry her, man. Yeah. I mean, she is tough. She's industrious. She knows how to um, use a bow and arrow. And Did she eventually get picked up? Yeah. Or, yeah. She gets, she yep. gets re- recovered. I want to marry her so bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good name. <laughs> He's already got a great name. I'll yep. take her name. Yeah. Stevie Blackjack. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> can lead an expedition <laughs> with that name. <laughs> well, um, we didn't give too much away, did we? No. Okay, good. You know, oh, what's the book about Ada Blackjack? <laughs> it, it's called uh, Ada Blackjack. Oh, that sounds a good name. Yeah, uh, and it was written by a woman named uh, Jennifer Niven, who who wrote a, the last book about this, um, but like twenty twenty two years ago. Um, and uh, this this woman is is a really great writer and has transitioned into like young adult um, writing now. Yeah. She doesn't write about the so arc. Canada did you never want... got their hands on. Not, not yet. No, they didn't. Um, and the, the Russians the, yeah. do. Um, and you know, it's cool because today, I, I don't even know if you guys know this, but today Wrangell Island is, um, a spectacular nature preserve. You can't go there without like, um, being, you know, you have to have specific paperwork. Make um, sure you're not bringing. Yeah. And, and it's the largest, uh, Pacific walrus, uh, breeding ground and the largest polar bear denning ground in the world to this day. Um, 
And it's just uh, spectacular. If you look at, um, like, just look at images online of it, it's so rugged, man. The top of it's like 3,500 feet. Um, and, you know, it's cool because there's, you know, there's beautiful rivers running out to the sea and um, polar bears hanging out. Now, the weird thing is that musk oxen, uh, people, they go, well, why didn't they just eat all the musk oxen that are there? Because if you look at Wrangell Island, there's musk oxen there now. Mm. They, they, were they weren't there then. They yeah. weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So it's like, well, they wish they'd had those musk oxen. <laughs> wow. Well, man, you got a good New York Times review. Hey, I appreciate the the shout out there. Yeah, this morning, New York Times uh, uh, said some nice things about this book, and um, I'm pleased. Uh, we're going to, you know, pump it up next week. December 6th is the drop date. You're and not doing any more podcasts, are you? You shouldn't do that. No, like, no, no competitive ones. Yeah, no, nothing that's good. <laughs> no, nothing that, there's no podcasts that are, that, that are like this, really, yeah. that are this. It's all uh, bullshit podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I like NPR, them. BS or something. You well, know, yeah, it's all you, structured and formal. Yeah, yeah. You, know? you yeah. already working on the, the third book in the trilogy? Yeah. Thanks for asking that, man. I, so, uh, I, I do need to get off the ice eventually because it's sort of <laughs> mind numbing, you know? Um, but I did pitch a book and I'm, I have, I'm under contract to write a third book in this trilogy and it's called Realm of Ice and Sky. And it, it's about the first, uh, what are called airships or blimps. Yep. Um, I, they're actually semi-rigid dirigibles, but try saying that a whole bunch of times, you know, um, semi-rigid dirigibles that were going to try to fly to the North Pole in 1905. This American God, dude. That just seems like such a bad idea, man. I know. Well, in 1905, this American dude named Walter Wellman. So this is before Peary has made it to the North Pole or Cook or whoever did. Um, he's like trying to fly from Svalbard, you know, Spitsbergen, north of uh, Norway, uh, in in a blimp toward, to get to the North Pole. Right now, it doesn't go well for Wellman. He, he lives, but he ends up being kind of pioneer for in, in 1926 – and then later, um, Amundsen ultimately goes with this guy named Umberto Nobile. Um, he's a, an Italian airship designer. They make it to the North Pole and from Svalbard, and then but pass over it and continue on to Nome. And right, so it's a huh. transcontinental flight, transarctic, transarctic yeah. uh, ice continent flight of the no pole. So two years later. Uh, Amundsen takes a lot of credit for it. And this, this Italian guy, Nobile is like, man, I need to do that again. Like, and get, and make it more about me. So he, he, this was a really bad idea. So he takes, he has mostly an Italian crew at this point, Amundsen and him are scrapping. And so Nobile takes, I mean, these things are huge, like a 400 foot blimp, you know, with like the cabin underneath. It looks like the Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. like like, exactly. (laughs) The Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And so they take it, they make it to over the North Pole and instead of continuing on. So the plan was to like land, it's hard to land a blimp because you need these like poles that you tie to, right? Tether to them. So they're going to try to like lower dudes down and do a North Pole study, right? Uh, out of like repelling out of the damn airship. Sure. Yeah. And so <laughs> that, that'll work. So anyway, wow. this is the bizarre thing that happens is that they make it to the North Pole. It's really fucking windy and it's not going well for their ability to, um, you know, um, uh, 
Nobile wants to go back, right? Back to Spitsbergen and not do the same thing that he did already, which is with Amundsen to continue on. So they turn it around. They can't land or land people. They throw the Italian flag out and they're like, okay, they know they're at the North Pole. They've got good uh, readings. On the way back, by the way, Nobile at this point is like, been awake for 76 hours. He's all sleep deprived and he makes some mistakes. They crash the blimp like 150 miles back toward uh, Norway, Spitsburg and Svalbard. They crash the blimp in this catastrophic accident. The cabin that has like a, most of the people in it, bunch of them, nine of them go spilling out onto the ice, right? Like they're thrown onto the ice. Their legs are shattered. They're broken. And then they look up and the uh, six of the other members uh, are still in the cabin and and the blimp is sailing off into the sky and they're like, ah, help. (laughs) And they freaking fly away, never to be seen again. And now you've got these guys on the ice and it, it creates the largest rescue operation in polar history, right? And then, in which, by the way, the famed explorer, Roald Amundsen, goes to go save Nobile, flies off in a Fokker shit, you know, seaplane, and never is seen again. It's <laughs> wow. awesome. What, is the blimp really <laughs> haven't been seen? Never been seen. And I mean, oh, that'd be quite a find. Yes. How is that? I mean, how is that possible? <laughs> Maybe it's still flying around up there. <laughs> it's a big place. Yeah. And things get engulfed by the leads in the ice, you know? Yeah, just swallowed. Oh, I kind of rather be in a boat for a year, I think. <laughs> yeah, that is. So that nuts, one, I got to really you gotta write right that one. Start writing that Once one. Once you write that one, come back. All right, you want to hear more about Noble and the. Oh, and yeah. the bring, Ada, bring Ada Blackjack with you. <laughs> <I will>. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate. I really that. appreciate you guys Thank having you. me. Uh, so, give give the give, hit people once more with the name of the book. All right, uh, this is Empire of Ice and Stone: The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carluck by Buddy Levy. Available anywhere books are sold. You bet. In audio too. And oh, did you do the read? No, ah, sons of bitches. They didn't let you do the read. <laughs> did you? Did you That's tell me another one? story? Did you tell me uh, why yeah. you do it? I mean, have you heard these pipes, man? Listen, man, I wouldn't let. I know. No, they said I'm doing it. another. I got it. I got so I got another book that's hitting the ten year mark. So I'm getting the audio rights back. I'm gonna do my own read. It was just the first time you will. Nope. Oh no, you did. Um, so I had a book like, okay, American. When when I sold, so when I sold American Buffalo, the the my publisher at Random House, they sold the audio to an outside place. The outside place did had t- bought the audio for ten years. Mm-hmm. They hired some soap opera guy to read it and they hunt him down and kill him. <laughs> then, <laughs> at ten years, it ran out. Yeah. Random House got it back. At that point, they were doing more audio. Yeah. Then I went in and did the read. Now the book I published after American Buffalo, my book Meat Eater, right, is the ten year thing is reverting, and I'm going to go oh, in the yeah. studio and read that son of a bitch. Yeah. Well. You know, I, I would like to, if I write something more more personal, a memoir, I will probably read it. Um, I'm very happy so far with uh, Macmillan Audio. Has they did a, a really good job. Good guy. Yeah, it's an actor, professional. I listened yeah. to like six voices, and I'm like, that you guy did? is pretty good. You shopped I mean, around? You went through a voice catalog? I did. You know, voice, uh, what do they call it? Um, when you 
go up for the job? Not what is it? Audition? Uh, yeah, a voice audition. I've told the story a hundred times, man. Probably fifty times on this show. But the when I got my first book that a guy that a soap opera person read, I turned it on. And he couldn't get two words out of his mouth, and I had to race over, <laughs> turn it off, and never. Was it? It was just it, like that's not what it sounds like. Was it? Was he an actual soap <laughs> opera actor? He, or like, that's he just read your... a line. He's probably he's probably a great family man. Loves his wife. <laughs> loves his children. <laughs> it was like that being said, you're going to hunt him down and kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I want to take it back. Yeah. Yeah. Not hunting anyone down. But. Loves his country, loves his wife, loves his children. I have no doubt. But it was like he had no business saying those words. That's too bad. I kind of want to hear it now. Yeah, I think I'm gonna, I have. I'm gonna, I'll, give it, I'll lend it to you. Tell me how it is. No, this guy's great. And by the way, sometimes, man, you're glad they because some of the words are really hard to pronounce. Yeah, you, you don't know? need to figure it out. Yeah, you're just like, let that guy handle it, you know? I, I know how to spell them. I don't know how to say them. <laughs> spell villain or like 250 times. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave yeah. that up to you, buddy. Yeah, it's tough. Good luck. Thank you. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. Good luck on the book. And uh, when you get the next one ready, come back. I appreciate it. Always uh, love what you guys do, man. Thank you thanks very so much. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that sport dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more.